<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This episode of the Rhino Podcast is brought to you by RTM Entertainment. They are offering Chicago fans the chance to win the ultimate VIP fan experience to fly to any Chicago concert in the country. Go backstage, hang with the band, get free Chicago band swag, and all you have to do is pick up your smartphone, open your texting app, and type the word Chicago to the number 47711 and hit send. You'll get a link texted back to you and click that to enter your info and qualify to win. New winners are picked each month. U.S. residents only. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the Rhino Cast Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kiddies. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. Today on the RhinoCast, we talk with Robert Lamb, Lee Lochnane, and Jimmy Pango from Chicago and get the inside story on their second album, Chicago 2. Dennis? Guess what we've got on the RhinoCast today. What do we got? I'll give you a clue. Great pizza. Deep dish or thin crust? Deep dish. It's got to be Chicago. It is Chicago. And it's more than just Chicago. It's Chicago. We'll be talking to the three original members of Chicago that are still out touring with the band about their second album, Chicago 2. It's been remixed. And I have to tell you, I kind of put it next to my original vinyl, and it just blows me away. But guess what? It's available again on vinyl. And the band is out on tour right now playing the album in its entirety. That is a one-of-a-kind concert. Did I tell you that I saw Chicago when Bruce Springsteen opened for them? We're talking 1973 at Madison Square Garden. As far as I know, they never played entire albums, you know, in concerts. So this is incredible. They hadn't played some of this music in over, well, about 50 years. 
and had to kind of almost relearn it in some cases. People forget that this was a Grammy-nominated record, and it was certified platinum. Well, absolutely, and it's also nominated for the Grammy Hall of Fame now. So the fact that we have three original members on the RhinoCast with us today is legendary in and of itself, and I don't know about you, but I want to listen, like, right now. Let's cut to our conversations with Robert Lamb, Lee Lochnane, and Jimmy Panko. Robert Lamb, thanks very much for joining us on the RhinoCast. I'm happy to talk about Chicago, too, for any reason whatsoever. Well, there's rave reviews for the new mixes, and everybody seems to be rediscovering the album. That's an interesting thing. Uh, You know, as, I have to say, as a songwriter, I'm dubious about it, but only on that level. It was a really bold and experimental album when it was released. Did you have any concern about how it might be received initially? The beginning of our career started with Chicago Transit Authority, and... Every nine months, we did an album. So it was really about being on the road, getting off the road, bringing in whatever songs had been written in the interim. Lord knows how we ever had the time to even write songs. I was going to say, where did you find time to write? You guys were constantly on the road. Yeah, I will tell you this, that for a period of time, after the first album, I shared a room with Jimmy Panko, and Jimmy was writing the ballet for A Girl in Buchanan on the road. You know, we'd come back from the gig, you know, the Holiday Inn, and he'd have a piano between the two beds, and I'd wake up and he'd, he'd be kind of getting ready to have some coffee and get back to work with it. And I think it was something that Jimmy Garcia, our producer, had kind of suggested, I wouldn't go so far as to say that he assigned it, but he suggested that Jimmy try to write something, a piece of music that was based on a classical form. So he did a lot of writing on the road. People try to describe your music, they use a bunch of different words, descriptors, classical, jazz, and most everything besides rock and roll, but I always kind of thought of Chicago as a rock and roll band with horns. Chicago is a rock and roll band with horns, but you know, for people who are sort of casually familiar with music and music terms and music styles, when they hear horns, they think jazz. You know, whether or not it actually jazz is depends on the song. And I've come late to the conclusion that A lot of the songs were not songs, they were compositions. I remember after several albums, our manager hired a guy to work the songs as a publisher, try to get covers, and he couldn't do it because he'd constantly get feedback that Chicago song is not a song. It can't be covered. Only Chicago can do that song that way. You guys are on tour right now, and you're playing Chicago, too. Some of this music you hadn't played for almost 50 years. What was it like to go back and revisit it and have to maybe, in some cases, relearn your own songs? Absolutely. Thankfully, I've I've always been proactive about keeping my manuscripts handy. I didn't have to go dive into a trunk or a file cabinet somewhere. I have them right on the shelf next to where I work at home. Interesting. So, But I did have to go and look at... What the heck did I play? You know, what were, what were the voicings that I was playing? You know, what were the lyrics? These are intricate songs. Yeah. And a little bit because we were sort of, by the success of the first album, we were sort of given permission to like, well, let's see how deep we can go. I mean, a song like Fancy Colors, that's way off the beaten path. I don't even know what to call it. It's, it's jazzy. Yeah. I would say that. But the final chord... that repeats. I had to look at my notes and look at my sketch scores to figure out what exactly that Well, I was just going to say, let's talk about Fancy Colors just for a second. It's really psychedelic at the end It is psychedelic, and that's what it's about. Where did the inspiration for that come around? Because it's so 
unlike any of the other endings on any of the other songs on any album of yours. Well, there were some psychedelics in the band going on, and, and let's face this, it was like 1969, 1970. It was the time. The heyday. And also, I remembered... At Roosevelt University, we had performed music where the lyrics were by E.E. E. Cummings, the poet. Mm -hmm. I was kind of mimicking a little bit some of the poetry that I had read after college. I was kind of playing with the lyric and trying to describe one of my acid trips with fancy colors. That's great. See, now I'm going to go home and try and put the red wheel there on the music. <laughs> <laughs> the great songs on Chicago too. Uh, 25 or 64. It has more spins at Classic Rock and AAA Radio than any other Chicago song. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. Thank um, you. <laughs> and you close with this song regularly when you play live. On Chicago too. it's in the middle of the set and you're playing Chicago too in its entirety on tour. Yep. Have you had to move it out of its original track we, listing location? Yeah, it was suggested by our manager, Peter Chivrelli, that, you know, really, you probably should... You know, close the show with that. What we've done, though, in the last couple of weeks is we've moved a couple of other songs around. I mean, what we've learned from being on the road for 50 years is that a successful performance, at least for us, is to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and, you know, in terms of dynamics. So we did have to switch a couple more songs around. Now, at f my first reaction when it was suggested that we do that was that, no, I mean, we're doing a reproduction of this album. We right. should stick to those plans. But it doesn't work. Kind of hard to follow that song with a ballad. Yeah, and I do think that when the albums were strictly vinyl, I mean, we put a lot of thought into the sequencing. You know, who's singing, what key is it in, what tempo is it, what's the subject of the song, you know. Right. All of those things, we spent a lot of time doing it. You know, the end of side one is like the end of act one. Exactly. But, you know, by the time we were all listening to CDs on random play... None of that matters. Let's touch on Terry just a little bit because sure. he's such a big part of the band during this era. Everybody knows what a smoking guitar player Terry was, yeah. but let's talk about Terry as a vocalist. 
He was unafraid. <laughs> really, I mean, if you could describe his approach, he was unafraid. You know, he would just make it happen. It's the way he played guitar as well, you know. He was constantly in uncharted territory, not only for other guitarists, but for himself. He would just find a way to make whatever solo or whatever fill he was playing, make it work, you know, and, and then never repeat, never repeat it. That was one of the things I wanted to talk about because I think that he had an ability to play long, drown-out passages that didn't run out of ideas and retain their articulation at, you know, they were fast and lengthy, but he never lost his articulation throughout the run. Did you ever hear him run out of an idea? No. He, he, he was Mr. Ideas, <laughs> you know? Yeah. He was a true explorer, an improviser. And I love at the end of his solo on the studio version of 25 or 64 on Chicago too, how he kicks in the wah pedal to give it a little different tonality. And it really just, man, it makes it just bust through the ceiling. Yeah, you know, uh, he was one of the first guys to really work the wah in an individual way. I remember being in some town, we went over to a music store and somebody was showing him the wah-wah pedal for the first time and you know, hooked him up and he, he was kind of like, oh, I don't know about this, you know? Yeah. You know, it's, but he, you know, he had, at that point, obviously he had the time to shed with it, but by the time he played, he was playing it in the, on the record. You he know, was he, showing people how it was done. Was like, this is how you work it. <laughs> right. Wake Up Sunshine was another one off Chicago, too. Did you draw any influence from Got To Get You Into My Life, the Beatles, on that one? Uh, no, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't really thinking about Got To Get You Into My Life. Although the idea of writing a song for the band that I'm in was heavily influenced by, I mean, we were all listening to Sgt. Pepper. Sure. And anything after that, the White Album, you know, all of that was happening concurrently with the beginnings of Chicago. So, you know, maybe, Maybe subconsciously. Wake up, sunshine. Open up your sleepy eyes for me. Can't have your heart in. I've been waiting all the night. People waiting for the light. Sunshine, sunshine. Wake up, let me feel your warm sunlight on me. Can't have your was long and night was cold. How did you guys write the background vocals and having the horn section? Did you try to keep them out of the way of each other or complement each other? Because sometimes background vocals can be used like horns or strings. Yeah. Well, a lot of thought went into that and a, a lot of discussion and di disagreement occurred during the pre-production or even during the process of recording songs. You know, obviously the track would come first and uh, uh, very often, on a lot of the songs that I wrote, I also arranged the brass, so. Interesting, I didn't know that. Yeah, so like 25 or 64 and, and uh, you know, and a number of others. So you heard the horn part in your head. Yeah, and I charted everything out, so. But 
I always was conscious of not getting things too much on top of each other unless they're really written as counterpoint. The thing that I was learning from Jimmy is writing whatever horn parts there were around the vocals and in the spaces if there wasn't anything else happening in those spaces, uh, whether it was a guitar lick or a fill or whatever. But then I figured out that the background vocals are more of a percussion part. So that's how to get away from the horn parts and the background vocals clashing. Well, you and Jimmy were both inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame last June. How does it feel to be in the company of so many great songwriters? It's really intimidating. And, and as a matter of fact, a friend of mine had sent me a pre-ceremony congratulatory email, and he listed all these incredible composers and put my name last, you know, as a way of saying, you know, well, like, welcome to the club. But I took it as, I don't belong in that list. I said that to the audience. So I said, you know, whether it was Cole Porter, Gershwin, Burt Bacharach, wow. Lennon McCartney, yeah. I said, I don't belong in that list. And everybody kind of, you know, the audience went, oh, you know, yeah, yeah, you do. Right. The idea of it is wonderful. I still am in awe of the songwriters who, I mean, take a guy like Tom Petty or Neil Young. Those guys modern-day songwriters wrote some really, really beautiful music. I am always, always been enamored of the songwriters of the early to mid-20th century, you know, the guys who wrote for Broadway and wrote for the movies, mm -hmm. lyrically and the harmonic structure. It's like a master class. And being able to tell a story so eloquently. Yeah, because they had to, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. right. Well, Robert, thank you so much. Appreciate your time with us My today. My pleasure. Let's see what Lee Lochnane has to say about Chicago, too. Well, Lee, thanks very much for joining us for the RhinoCast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you taking some time out of tour. We're here in St. Louis, Missouri today. Chicago, too. Recently re-released after being remixed. What do you think about the remixed version of Chicago, too? I think it sounds pretty true to what we did before. I think, you know, mixing in the box, as they say, in the computer without yeah. being able to come out to uh, analog is as close as you can get it. And it sounds pretty good. You hear different things, different overtones, different things come through that because of the purity of the digital, yeah. allow less distortion. You hear different things than you heard on the original. Right. You're obviously a great trumpet player, but you'll bring a lot more to the band than that. And now currently you sing Color My World on tour. I do. What's that like for you every night? I backed into it somehow because we decided to try to recreate a bunch of the hits. I think it was for advertising. They wanted to use these songs to see if they could get commercials and stuff. So we recorded a bunch of songs and it became the Nashville Sessions. We did Make Me Smile and Color My World and a few of the guys had gone in to sing the lead vocals and I said, you know what? Give me a shot at it. You'll know within like one bar, a hit or a miss, you know, right. pull me out, drag me out by my neck and, and it'll be over. But I sounded texturally closer to Terry than anybody else in the band. So I tried to recreate, impossibly recreate Terry's vocal. A little bit of his vibe. <laughs> yeah. We'd listen to the licks and then I'd sing it. And then we'd listen to the licks and I'd sing it. So it came out sounding um, pretty good. 
Chicago 2 gave the band three radio hits. At that point, you hadn't had any hits off the first album. They would not play our first album on AM radio because we hadn't had a hit yet. So the obvious question is, how the hell are you going to have a hit if you don't play something? So they decided that they liked Make Me Smile in Ballet for a Girl in Buchanan yeah. and extracted it. Make Me Smile is the first movement and then it reprises at the very end. Yes. And so we pulled the two pieces that were Make Me Smile out and became a three-minute song. Well, that was a big hit for you guys. It was our first hit. Yeah. Yeah, it was a big hit and our first hit, which allowed the re-release of the songs from the first album. Does anybody really know what time it is, beginnings, and uh, I think I'm a man. Mm -hmm. And then AM said, I think it was almost a threat. If you release one more song off the first album, we'll never play anything again. <laughs> your your career like, is over. Give us some new material. <laughs> That's right. And they already had the new material on two. Yeah. Both of those albums could have kept going hit-wise for yeah. a long time, but the rigors of the business, I think, stopped them from promoting it. They wanted us to move on to something else. As I was walking down the street one day A man came up to me and asked me What the time was that was on my watch Yeah, I said Does anybody really know what time it is? Well, you're playing Chicago, too, live on this tour now. Mm -hmm. And some of these songs you haven't played for almost 50 years. What was it like to revisit the music and maybe in some cases have to relearn it? Well, a couple of these are songs that I've always wanted to revisit anyway. But I had no idea we would be able to bring the entire album back and present that to an audience night after night. Once we started playing them again, you realize how interesting these songs are. They're not just pop tunes. <laughs> and, and they never were, and I think that was good and bad for us. Lee, thank you very much for your time today. We appreciate you sitting down and uh, taking some time out of the tour and talking about these great releases. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Please welcome Jimmy Painko to the RhinoCast. Jimmy, thanks so much for taking some time and coming and visiting us here for the RhinoCast. This is amazing. The second album having been rediscovered by the band, and wow, it's a challenge to play after all these years. I look back, and I'm amazed. We were 20-year-old kids, and we created this? Yeah. You know, it blows me away because it's extremely challenging music. I'm amazed the fact that as youngsters, we were able to create and nurture this musical path. Nobody was doing this stuff. Now I kind of get a sense of, well, perhaps there's a reason that this band made a mark, that we're still around. This music is a testament to this pioneering approach to pop. You wrote music that is, it's a steak dinner compared to, you know, a Happy Meal. 
or something. You know what I mean? It really has substance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did the hors d'oeuvres and the uh, yeah, the whole nine years. <laughs> yeah, this music is very daring, very unique. And, you know, we didn't know the rules. We didn't know what we were doing in terms of what was cool, what was appropriate. We wrote what we heard. And the fact that Gersio was able to negotiate a deal with Columbia to allow us two discs is great because it was then possible to embody the full musical spectrum. Had we been allowed only one disc, one album, one vinyl per package, we would not have been able to cover the full spectrum of what we heard at that time. So the fact that Columbia gave us the green light for two discs was necessary and grateful because we were able to do the full scope of where we were at at that time. This album is that important to you and the legacy of the band? Yes, yes. Arguably, Chicago 2 is the template for all of the music that came later. You know, as a composer and arranger, I look at that as a very significant piece in the history of the band. The first album, Chicago Transit Authority, was the first one. You know, it's yeah. your first baby, your sure. first child, and that is significant in of itself. But we were still in the formative period. The music on CTA was the music that we introduced as we played nightclubs in the Midwest. And when we brought it into, this, <laughs> into the sets and the clubs, we got fired from one club after another because they didn't want to hear that. Yeah, right. They wanted to hear Top 40. Yeah. I look at Chicago 2 as the actual first package of what was really the essence of Chicago because this is the music that represented, okay, we know where we're going here. We know what we want to say. So let's write it. And that's Chicago, too. So it's you, not only as a band, this is who you are, but as composers and arrangers, this exactly. is really who you guys are. Exactly. Well, I think that the remix and re-release of Chicago, too, is probably affording people that didn't dive into it originally or were never exposed to it a new opportunity to really get into this music. Absolutely. And to redefine and gain, for the first time, a real clear understanding of the musical roots of the band and what got us here and what this band really represents musically. All of the greatest hits are wonderful. There are requisite songs that if you don't play, you get tomatoes thrown at you. Yeah. Those have been our stalwarts over the years. People pay their hard-earned money to hear the songs that represent special memories in their lives. And in performance, you look into a crowd and you can see them remembering those moments. Right. And it's a communion between the audience and the band. To this day, that synergy is still happening. And then you add Chicago too, which is the reason that we're all still here into the mix. And it really is significant. People are eating it up, man. As a composer and arranger, you wrote what a lot of people feel is the cornerstone piece on this album, Ballet for a Girl in Buchanan. Yeah, the ballet is a unique composition because of its classical approach and multi-movement construction. And it also gave you your first two hits. Yes. I was in my car heading down Santa Monica Boulevard in L.A., and KHJ, if you made the playlist on KHJ, you had a hit single. 
We didn't record hit singles. We didn't think of our music in terms of capsulized little snippets of hit music, which became the game plan for all artists into the 80s. This preempted that, and they edited singles out of our music. We didn't know what edits were, and the record company went in with their razor blades and snipped out pieces of songs and created uh, little three-minute ads for your music. And in the car, I was listening to the hit radio station and Make Me Smile came on. I'm going, wow, this sounds familiar. And Papa, it's not the ballet that I wrote, but hey, it's Make Me Smile. It's a movement from the ballet. And the DJ went on to say, this is a new song by a new band called Chicago and it's destined for number one. And I got all excited. It caught me completely by surprise. I, I realized at that moment that we were on our way. My World, which was the second single off the record, it's told that Frank Sinatra wanted to record it. Yeah, yeah, we got a call. Our publishing administrator, Bernie Silverman was his name. Uh, he was the guy that shopped our songs. And he got a call from Sinatra's people asking if that kid would be willing to write an extra verse to Color My World because he wanted to record it. And boy... On one hand, I was absolutely thrilled and blown away that Old Blue Eyes, the great Frank Sinatra, arguably the male songsmith of all time, yeah. wanted to record a Chicago song, and he chose Color My World, which was a movement of the ballet, never intended to stand on its own. It was a minute and 50 seconds. And that one request... Whew, that was a heavy one. I had to think about that because that was such a thrill to even get the invitation. So, yeah, I thought about it. Ugh. Wow, I, I labored over that for several days, and I called Bernie back, and I said, you know, I thought about this. I angsted over this. I haven't been able to sleep because I'm in a position of either saying yes to the legendary Frank Sinatra and writing another verse for Color My World or leaving it intact. And I said, Bernie, I got to leave it like it is. I can't change it because it would be like sewing another arm onto my kid. You know, it's I can't change. In your mind, it was already a complete vision. It was a complete vision. Well said. And so I turned it down, man. Wow. I might be the only person in the history of the music industry that said no to an opportunity to get a cover by yeah. Old Blue Eyes. Yeah. So Great to be nominated, right? <laughs> it sure is. Just to have been invited was an incredible honor. 
Absolutely. Well, speaking of being nominated, not only were you nominated, but you were inducted along with Robert into the Songwriters Hall of Fame yeah. last June. Pretty cool, huh? Congratulations, and what was that like? Thank you. Well, you know, it was a personal honor as a composer to be included with the greatest composers in pop history. Here we are being invited into a place that included, you know, the Beatles, Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, Bob Dylan. You go down the list. For me, that was the highest honor I could have possibly received. And I was very, very humbled when we went out to perform, which we were asked to do. What did you perform? Uh, just You and Me. It was a daunting performance because you look out into the ballroom and here are all of these faces of former inductees and huge names in modern composition looking at you. I was very nervous. Yeah. In fact, when I went over to the podium to join Robert to give our thank you acceptance speech, I couldn't get my lavalier mic untangled from the button of my jacket. And Robert was looking over at me, waiting for me to come to the podium, and thankfully he broke the ice by saying, Panko's always late, man. You know, and it, <laughs> and it got a big laugh. And I wound up, you know, having to yank the mic. You know, oh, it wasn't, it wasn't the lavalier mic. It was my in-ears to the trombone. It was the trombone mic. Okay. And I couldn't give my horn to my assistant to go up and say a few words. So... I basically tore the button off my jacket to give him my horn because I couldn't <laughs> unclip the mic thing. To this day, my beautiful tux jacket is in my closet with a missing button. You need to give that to <laughs> yeah. the Hall of Fame to <laughs> yeah. put in the exhibit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, the Songwriters Hall of Fame was big. That was really big. I'm very, very grateful and humbled to have been invited. You know, Robert and I both. It was really a validation for not only us as composers, but for the significance of this music once again. And now Chicago, too, is up for consideration to be included in the Grammy Museum along with your first record. Yeah, you know, these accolades, these acknowledgements for this amazing career continue 50 years later. And not only did we never think that we'd still be viable and in demand, but to be acknowledged by our peers and the Academy for this music this many years later is a miracle and it's amazing. As time goes on, I realize just what you mean to me. And now. Howdy, buckaroos. Circle the wagons and sound the alarm. It's time for the Rhino Roundup. Hi, this is Lauren G. 
and John Hughes. And we're here with the Rhino Roundup. 2018 marks Rhino's 40th anniversary, and we've got a very special summer campaign back to the 80s. And with us today is a very special guest, Steve Willard from A&R. Hi, everybody. Steve, you're here to tell us about Alice Cooper back on vinyl. Yes, we're going to be coming out with three albums starting in July July 17th, the early 80s collection. Okay, so we're talking Flush the Fashion, right? The the, the new wave record with clones? Yes. I love it. It's Roy Thomas Baker, right? That was, yeah, that's, he's the guy. He did that one. I'm the guy that likes that album. Okay, very good. (laughs) But but it's also Dada and Zipper Catches Skin, right? Correct, you are, yeah, from 82 and 83, I believe. These are all actually cut from the original flat analog masters, except for except for the Roy Thomas Baker album. Chris Bellman at Bernie Groman Mastering had to go with the EQ tape on that one because he couldn't match what RTB had done to the flat to make the record sound the way it did. Yeah, it wasn't like 40-plus yeah. tracks or something. <laughs> yeah. No, so, uh, so these should all sound fabulous. They'll be on colored vinyl, so, you know, collect them all. Is this the first time they've been back on vinyl since the original issue? I believe in America that's true. First time we've certainly reissued these on vinyl. And certainly the first time they've been reissued on vinyl from the original analog tapes. I hear a couple other Alice Cooper releases might come out as part of Rocktober. That's true. We'll be following this series with Goes to Hell from the Inside and Lace and Whiskey sometime in October of this year. So mark your calendars. Good time to be an Alice Cooper fan. I would say. Collect them all. All right, and that is this week's Rhino Roundup. The boy's got problems, the boy's got stress. The boy's got a 38 hidden in his desk. The boy's got a chicken with four months to go. Bring facts know. Thanks for joining us on the Rhino Cast today about Chicago's sophomore record, Chicago 2. Great insight and stories today from Robert, Lee, and Jimmy. If you want to learn more, please visit Rhino.com. And of course, Chicago 2 is available at all the usual digital outlets for your streaming pleasure. Stream what you like and buy what you love. And last but certainly not least, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next RhinoCast. Executive producers for Rhino, John Hughes and Lauren Goldberg. Produced for Rhino by PopCult and Rich Mayhan Promotions. All rights reserved. This episode of the Rhino Podcast is brought to you by RTM Entertainment. They are offering Chicago fans the chance to win the ultimate VIP fan experience to fly to any Chicago concert in the country. Go backstage, hang with the band, get free Chicago band swag, and all you have to do is pick up your smartphone, open your texting app, and type the word Chicago to the number 47711 and hit send. You'll get a link texted back to you and click that to enter your info and qualify to win. New winners are picked each month, U.S. residents only.